Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Greetings to all of you planeswalkers and spellcasters throughout the multiverse. It is great to hear that you've tuned in to yet another episode of Draft and Draft. My name is Corey, your denizen of the Unlucky Lounge, joined alongside Borok. And always, the two of us are here to bring you fun, engaging magic content throughout different places, different universes, and different journeys. And today is just such an occasion. We're bringing back our walking episode, but putting a little interactive twist on it. But before we get to that content, first bits of housekeeping get out of the way. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out at BLEAV.com. You can find them wherever you download your podcast, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your great audio content. And of course, as always, this podcast is only possible because of all of you, my lucky lounge rats, my denizens of Montescrew Manor. You make this show what it is with your listening, with your positivity, with your follow. So find us on social media at Twitter, Draft and Draft Corey. You can find me on Instagram, Corey Damone Enriquez. And of course, our Patreon, Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. Any amount of following, commenting, or maybe even joining in on our Patreon, you help us keep the lights on in the Unlucky Lounge. Well, all of my Unlucky Lounge rats, the housekeeping is done. The sorcerer's broom is put back into the conjurer's closet. And it's time for us to get to today's topic at hand. We're just about midway into Corset 2021. The big news stories have dropped with how Limited plays out. We all know it's an aggressive format that rewards deploying your hand out early. But now that we're about midway through and I think some things have started to settle down, now is a good time to start talking about each color and the colors that pair with it well and what maybe we should be doing to try and support the color combinations that we see naturally pass to us in the draft on Arena. So we're going to use our surroundings here in this lovely natural park that myself and Porak have found ourselves in and use our surroundings, what we see, to help us frame the flow of our conversation of the different two color pair archetypes in Corset 2021. Now, this is real. We're walking outside. We're observing the things that are around us to help us frame different conversational starting points for the colors in the latest set. I mean, I'm walking right now and a family of rollerbladers just came right by me. So what I see around is gonna help us begin to frame the different colors. When I see something that helps inspire me to talk about a certain color, that's where I'm gonna leap off into talking about that color. But this is where I would love to have a call to action to all of you unlucky lounge rats out there. I find that some of my best epiphanies for magic play comes when I'm actively doing something else. So. If you get a chance to, take this podcast out on the go. Find a place, find a park, take a walk about, get some oxygen in those lungs, and maybe that's going to help the mind start to turn the cranks and help you come to different ways of seeing the world of the game with the world around us. So as I'm walking, and if I see something that inspires me to talk about a color, I'm going to take a photo of it. 
I'm going to drop it on our socials, Instagram and Twitter, so you can see the exact same things that are inspiring me to talk about the different colors in Corset 2021. Well, that's enough framing. I say let's get to walking and let's get to talking. Yeah, Borak, not a bad place to start. I mean, we are surrounded in a state park, plenty of forests around us, so let's start at the bottom of Wooburg. Let's talk about green. Now, green is a very interesting color in M21 because it's fitting into a couple different slots to try and make the color hum with some of the other archetypes. In fact, when I'm looking at green, I see it more as a middle place to find a different color, and then if green is open, you go into it. So with green prefaced and kind of in the air, I wanna break down and talk about the different color pairings that a support color like green might be apt to go into. And yes, I do say green as a support color because when I'm drafting a deck like green, I'm almost kind of going like 40 to 45% green and then more of the other supporting color. Now that is mostly ubiquitous and true for any of the pairs, except for one rather complicated deck that I have come to see as more than just a flat surface and a basic draft, and that is the color combination of green-red. You see, green-red, I think, actually has two different sides of the coin. The first one is the one I think that most people see, and that is the green-red ramp deck. You're playing your Lanoir Visionaries, you're playing your Palladium Mirrors, you're utilizing the green-red signpost card to go big and make large creatures that are going to kill your opponent in one swing. Things like Watcher in the Woods, things like Colossal Dreadmaw, even Bone Pit Brute has, well, kind of impressed me over time. Because here's a fundamental truth about the ramp deck compared to the field. It doesn't really much matter what kind of things you're ramping into as long as they have bigger than a 4-4 body. And even a 4-4 body with reach is quite good in compared to what some of the aggro decks are trying to do. So, for example, I ended up drafting a deck that I couldn't find a Colossal Dreadmaw to save my soul, but Bone Pit Brute tabled around a few times. And that's gonna be okay, because quite frankly, that card is an evasive threat that has an effect when it enters the battlefield and allows you to put pressure on the table. Whenever I'm drafting, a green-red deck, even when it's ramping out, I'm trying to find the opportune times to put pressure on the opponent. And just a side note, a card that does both a great defensive job in the ramp deck, along with being a good aggressive threat, is Turret Ogre, the 4-3 with reach that deals two damage when you control another creature with power four or greater when it enters the battlefield. This card has significantly impressed me from the last time it was in limited environment, which is War of the Spark. It's got four power, so it supports both Garrick's Rising and Freya's Rise. It blocks flying creatures, which can shut down some green-blue decks. And if your opponent's playing Gale Super, it can block whatever your opponent was trying to get in with, like, say, five damage or something. It, it can shut down big turns that your opponent's trying to tempo out Yorka and Troll and big board strategy with a flying creature. I wouldn't go more than, say, like, two turret ogres, but... I put two in my decks before in the past and been quite happy. Now, the big mana deck, we all see it out of green red, the four power matters build, but there's another relatively powerful green red variant, and that is the curve consideration green red variant. Uh, that's like 
playing solid two drops like your Drowsing Tyranodon, like your uh, Immolator, the 2-2 with prowess that sacks a deal damage to a Planeswalker creature equal to its power. You can play Goblin Arsonist in this deck. And one card that surprised me in a green-red deck that I put together recently was Hobble Fiend. This is the 1-2 with Trample that you can sack another creature to give it a plus one, plus one counter. So I've tried this card multiple times in black-red and it never really pays off. You don't really have the resources to sacrifice with your Hobble Fiends to really let you pay off the value for it. Uh, but for some reason, in the green-red deck that has access to cards like Titanic Growth and Fungal Rebirth, and being able to utilize the extra mana you're getting from green, red, it's allowing you to kind of have this sub-theme curve-out package that it can do a relatively reasonable impression of Drowsing Tyranodon if you don't end up with that many and you're still trying to curve out in a green, red deck. So next time you're drafting and you're kind of seeing green, red signals, don't necessarily always think you have to go to the large mana, you can have a pretty good early curve iteration of the deck that can equal just as much potency as the big creature curve tap out, play your six drop early and try to win the game that way. Now, I don't need to beat a dead horse on this one, but I think we all know that the green, white, plus one, plus one counters deck is just Nutter Butters. It's great. It's got the big creatures that uh, white provides, Bastard's Acolyte, you've got the three one season Hollow Blade, of course, Drowsing Tyranodon. You just play out your hand, you give your creatures a little more power, and you push through for the game. And things like Feet of Resistance and also having access to Titanic Growth has been very, very beneficial for this archetype. You can listen to any content and you'll know that Green White is very, very good. Conclave Mentor is one of the few signposts on commons that I would take pick one, pack one, and be very, very happy about playing into. Green Blue, in contrast to all of this, has not, well, it's not really impressed me all that much. I think Green Blue is one of the few archetypes that didn't quite get there. It can be really good at creating a board presence and roaming ghost lights, can go down turn five and get back your tempo and it is a decent place for Teferi's Tutelage, but the fact that there's not all that much early interaction in green-blue from turns, I don't know, one through three, it makes me way more leery to be in this deck. Although, Unsubstantiate, I think is actually quite a bit better than a normal Unsummon would be in this format due to the fact that the red-white decks are actually playing marks and they're playing doves quite frequently. So a card like this turns out to be a good tempo swing. And the truth is, if you're playing green-blue, you're probably drawing just a bunch of cards. So if the signals are passing to you and you see green-blue is something that the cards are telling you to go into, I'd be, all right, let's do it. But find things like Unsubstantiate to help you out. And Lofty Denial, too. Counter unless you pay one or four if you control a flying creature. Another card that actually plays a pretty good role in the green-blue deck. Now, one of the archetypes to talk about is the green-black deck, and I think most people have agreed that black is one of the weak colors in Corsa 2021, and while I do think that is true, I think the presence of green-black might give a little bit of a slight uptick for the entire black color pie, and here's why. 
The black and green side of M21 is about that dies trigger kind of feel to it. Things like Liliana's Devotees or Twin Blade Assassins, getting the destroy trigger and that end of turn you either get to draw a card or make more zombies, it can turn out to provide just the right amount of interaction on the board and getting extra value out of your cards to help you power through to the later game. And even in these decks, you can still go larger with the big mono rent package. You still get Lenoir Visionary, you still get Palladium Mirror, and a presence of a Cultivate in this format means that you might be able to justify playing Grasp of Darkness earlier in the game, even though it has that double black cost. Now we mentioned this card just a little bit ago, but I do think that Black Green is the best home for some of the black uncommon payoff cards like Liliana's Devotee and Malefic Scythe. The presence of green giving us extra mana to play with, along with having some decent fixers like the tap lands, this is the best place for them I think, and cultivate, and maybe you could even afford playing the green shrine. No, I that, that's too crazy. Sorry, Bark, I'm getting a little crazy here. <laughs> yeah, exercise and magic can make the mind go to weird places, I might say. But in any case, if you're in early pack one and you see like an okay white card and an okay red card, but maybe you see one of these mono black payoff cards like Devotee or Scythe, I would take this card and I don't think this format is so discouraging with aggro that I wouldn't think about trying to go into a green-black dies trigger deck and take advantage of getting some of the black cards that people are not taking because of the evaluation of black being so poor in this format. As this format has continued on, I think that the really, really strong curve decks have become less proliferated in the latter of Best of One Magic Arena, and you can still take advantage of seeing some strong, powerful cards in black or green and combine them to make a good deck. Oh, Borak, don't run off. Borak, where are you going? Where are you going? Whoa. Wow, that's kind of crazy that you found that, buddy. I mean, I wasn't sure how we were going to end up talking about this color, but looks like along the way we found ourselves one of those little public libraries. You know, kind of like the larger than a bird seed house, stored with books that people leave after they're done reading. I love these things. They're so nice. I don't quite recognize any of the books in here. And it's not really a walking atlas, but hey, since we're talking about sharing knowledge and people leaving things behind, making content more accessible, let's talk about blue. First, right off the top, we have to talk about Blue-Red. It's the deck that everybody says is probably one of the top-tier decks and in contention with other big powerhouses like White-Red and White-Green. And if I can put my own two cents into it, I would have to say, yeah, I agree. This deck is strong. It has all the best early interaction with red. It allows you to gain so much tempo with cards like Roaming Ghostlight. And the presence of prowess on some of the creatures in this format makes for cards like Opt and Crash Through to be potent hitters. Things that push through big amounts of damage that your opponent didn't anticipate. Which is another reason why Goblin Wizardry is an absolute house. 
And this was really great insight from the boys at Limited Resources. Blue-Red is actually two separate decks. There is the aggressive, low-curve deck that plays out as much as it can and gets a little bit of that. Hey, puppy. Someone is excited as well to talk about Blue-Red, clearly. There is a low-to-the-ground, deploy-your-hand-out-early Blue-Red deck, plays some extra added value damage to the face, like Chandra's Magma to help you finish out the game. Mistral Singer is a great piece. And of course, with all the early cantrips, plus the Goblin Wizardry, it outputs enough damage to kill your opponents relatively quickly. Then there is the later game decks, and these are decks that can be supported with some pretty big blue threats. Things like uh, Spined Megalodon or Tolarian Kraken. They're big impact late game cards, and the support of early removal and some other ways to answer big things like a Turn to Slag or Capture Sphere or two can get you to a place where you're actually playing the control strategy relatively well. And what's cool about this is you get to keep yourself open to both decks as you're taking blue and red cards. These two colors are just, they're so deep, Borok, it can make you go anywhere. Yeah, and another big advantage is the fact that the uncommon signpost card, Experimental Overload, it... Yeah. <laughs> Did I just sound Australian when I said that? In any case, the Experimental Overload is just a very strong card. It's like the best form of Archaeo Master that I've ever seen. Bronk, this is like the third episode in two months where I've broken out some kind of Australian accent. Why in the world is that? I've never even been there. Yeah, I think you're right, Borok. It has been me watching a lot of Alias V. For those of my unlucky lounge rats out there, Alias V is a pretty amazing, iconic streamer on Twitch. She plays Magic Arena, she's top of the leaderboards often, and just a joy to watch her work. She was on Let's Draft before, so just recommendation to anyone out there, if you haven't checked her out on Twitch, look up Alias V. She's also on Twitter, and she streams almost every day. Let's help keep the streak alive! Hey! Alias V! Alias V! Yeah, I'll make sure to drop her name on the socials post so people out there listening, you can find her. Anyway, let's go ahead and talk about the big blue elephant in the room. And I'm not talking about Horton, no. I'm talking about Teferi's Tutelage. The mythic uncommon of this set. The card that you just take and you don't need to support it all that much to make it really, really potent. We all know it, two and a blue for an enchantment when it enters the battlefield. You loot, and then every time you draw a card, your opponent mills two cards. The reason why this card is just so potent is it rewards you for doing what, well, what might be the best mechanic in all of Magic the Gathering, and that is drawing cards. And it just so happens that this format is flush with card draw. Between so many looters, Reign of Revelation, random things in red and green, and oof, don't even get me started on frantic inventory. That card has shot up, in my estimation, over time significantly. If I'm seeing it like three or four in a pack without a lot of early interaction, I might just think about snapping it up. Especially early, establishing yourself 
in the early parts of the game as being with one of these cards that names itself and propagates more effects by having multiple copies in the deck, staking your claim early has really been something that has paid off in multiple archetypes now. From Corset 2020, from Whisper Squad, Nicoria, and now Frantic Inventory. Frantic Inventory plus the Freight Tulage, a deck in of itself. We talked extensively in the past about blue black reanimator so i don't think we have to harp too much on it but just once more think about how much looting you have how many discard outlets and then when you're getting to a good place maybe you have a certain number of crypt lurkers you've got obsessive stitcher you have a teferi's whatever the the looter guy the two three that loots i forget his name off the top of my head but once you have a certain number of these you can start to take off color bomb cards and let those be the things that catapult you to victory. You find yourself facing a late pick Gargadon or Baneslayer Angel or some other big crazy colorful rare, you can legitimately take it as long as you have enough discard outlets to support the reanimation package. And I can't wait until we see what the overall long lasting repercussions of rarity shifting reanimation in regular standard drafting environments to common. It's gonna provide hopefully a slew of new different kinds of ways of looking at reanimation, being able to reliably put it on because it really makes you feel like you're getting away with something when you're putting some of these massive creatures that aren't in your colors, you're putting them onto the battlefield super early and you just sit back and watch your opponent rope as they figure out there's nothing they can do to try and stop the shenanigans that are about to ensue. Now there's one more blue deck that I want to talk about, and it's the blue-white flyers deck. This archetype is always going to be strong. It's always going to be good, especially because of how important your early interaction spells are in this format. They're important, they're key, and if your opponent doesn't draw them or have any in their opening hand, or because they're so necessary and not as easy to get, in other decks that this deck can really take a game away quite quickly by having evasive threats and having some very good ways of making them bigger evasive threats hey that's a recipe for success there's no doubt the problem that i have is that while this blue white flyers deck is good all the things that make this deck better are things that other decks are actually looking to get as well. This includes Bastard's Acolyte. This includes, say, your Mistral Singer, which is good in both the blue-red deck and is, well, quite good in the blue-white and can play an important role in the black-blue Flyers deck as well. So finding this deck, to me, is pretty key to finding what pieces go around your blue shell. Because blue isn't great at being aggressive, but white is pretty good. White is very good. If you're starting to go really hard into your mono white deck and pick up a few late blue flyers, say a late Mistral Singer, you see the blue-white uncommon come around kind of late, it'd be a great signal to get into that deck before it's too late. But before I move on from the blue-white package, I do want to talk about two cards that are key role players. Cards that, if I have them, I might try to upshift 
my potential to go into the blue-white deck. The first one is a card that if you're white, you're basically going to play every copy of it as you can, and that's Speed of Resistance. One and a white instant, target creature gets plus one, plus one counter, and protection from a color of your choice. Not only does it blink an opponent's removal spell, but it's a trick that can help you get through damage for the win. Your opponent has what? A snare spinner? Well, throw green, go right through it. If I have a couple feet of resistance, maybe one or two in pack one, I would really evaluate those blue flyers a little bit more. It's particularly good with Mistral Singer and being able to protect your flying threat when your opponent is just actively needing to get rid of it as soon as they possibly can because they're on the back foot because of your tempo. A card like this is going to win you the game straight out. There is one other card in white that I do want to talk about. A card that's relatively decisive, that swift response. One in a white to destroy target capped creature. It's an instant. And it's good, kind of in this deck. Because one way that the blue-white flyers deck loses is if your opponent goes wider than you or goes taller than you. Green-red can sneak games from underneath this deck by playing out an early Colossal Dreadmaw. And having access to swift responses in the blue-white deck where they're going to continue to swing underneath you because your flying creatures are typically smaller than the big things that green is trying to do. A good swift response in the blue-white deck is going to win you a game or two, especially when your opponent's only plan to try and beat the things that they can't interact with is trying to kill you. So, if you're in the white decks early, you've got a feat of resistance, you've got a swift response in the early picks, think about looking for blue signals and going into the blue-white flyers deck. Pick up Roman Ghost Lights, get your early creature drops, pick up a selfless savior, protect your flyers, and win the game. Yeah, Borak, are you, you're getting a little winded too? I'm feeling it. I, I didn't give enough credit to the difficulty of podcasting while going up and downhill. So why don't we take a second to take a big, deep cleansing breath. <sighs> feels good but you know now that i think about it borak did you remember to lock up the unlucky lounge before we did our walkabout come on man that's no excuse if it's complicated to set up wouldn't you say that's a good sign of a bad security system but don't worry borak i have a solution it's my friends at simply safe they are designed to be order online right out of the box set up the sensors Bing, bang, boom, your house or our pub is protected. You couldn't ask for more than an easy-to-use security system to keep you safe. And this is your call to action, my unlucky lounge rats. Head to simplysafe.com backslash team to get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com backslash team. Wouldn't you say it feels good to fear less? Ah, well, welcome back, all my unlucky lounge rats. I hope if you're out there walking, you took a second to replenish the bodily fluids, the electrolytes, getting the body ready to continue on walking. Because, Borok, let's get to jaunting around some more. What do you say, buddy? That's what I'm talking about. We're getting fit, we're getting strong, and guess what? We just saw ourselves a bog. Yes, I can't script this, y'all. literally just walked near a swamp. You'll see that photo on our socials on Instagram and Twitter, but it came out out of nowhere, which makes this a great time 
to talk about the presence of black in CoreSet 2021. Now, as we already reviewed and talked through blue and green in interacting with black, we have two decks to talk about when it comes to the black side of the color pie. The first one is red, black, and the sacrifice themes that are found in there. And if you recall back with our last walking episode, this was one of my most hyped deck archetypes to draft in course at 2021. However, having tried it multiple, multiple times, I gotta say, not that impressed, Borok. Yeah, it's just, it's just awkward. The sacrifice payoffs are not there, and Witch's Cauldron is not very good. It's just super awkward and very mana-intensive. The things that this archetype wants to do requires a lot of mana and a lot of time. Neither things we really have in Corset 2021. Now, we mentioned this before with our impromptu bonus episode drop from last week, and that is the Black Shell does get a little support from some of the red rummaging effects like thrill possibilities to support more of the animation archetype. And this, I think, is one of the consequences, and I wouldn't say consequences in a bad way, but one of the things that happens when we downshift reanimation into common is that there are multiple different deck archetypes that can make this possible. It's really quite astounding that you just start playing with cards and you find ways to enable the reanimation archetype say the demonic embrace that we did the other day throw possibilities and i'm sure there's a few other ones that i'm forgetting about if you can remember some of the rummaging effects maybe in red that i haven't mentioned yet drop it in the comments on instagram or twitter and we can review that in a later episode but red black as a sacrifice theme it just it's not there and even if you end up with a number of the uncommon threatened effects and you have like the nice curve to go into stealing and sacking with the cauldron, it's its just not that great, even at the end of taking your opponent's creature and getting to draw a card off of it. It just takes so many cards to really make this thing benefit. And I'm just, I'm off it. Even if you have, say, a Malefic Scythe and a number of Liliana Stewarts and some other things I can sacrifice, say, enabling with a Hobble Fiend, it's just not powerful enough or explosive enough. And when you're trying to do these things, it takes more time than you're quite frankly allowed in course at 2021. The only time that this deck actually really gets there is if you're maxed out on removal, which gives you the time to set up other things. But now we're not doing it for the sacrifice, we're just doing it for as many shock, scorching dragon fires, grasp of darknesses and eliminates that you possibly can get. <laughs> Yeah, you are absolutely right about that, Borak. When you're just trying to put as many good cards into a deck, just any good ubiquitous removal spells, in modern sensibilities, that's not really what we call a deck. That, folks, is what we call a trap. Now, we have one more black archetype to talk about, and that is white-black life gain. And actually, this entire inspiration for this Redux to the Walking Podcast actually comes with this kind of thought. You see, I recently started a draft and I started off what I thought was very strong. I was pick one, pack one of Bastard's Lieutenants. 
the three four with vigilance that when it enters the battlefield you put a counter on it protection for multicolor vigilance when a creature with a counter dies you get a two two knight with vigilance i followed up that pick with an eliminate and i thought this is great i've got a good solid two for one four drop i've got a great piece of removal what can go wrong from here well the next pack was passed there was nothing there there was literally nothing so i did what i do best and that is take color fixing to keep myself open even though i knew this is not the kind of set to go three colors but there was a temple of triumph so i took it i thought okay maybe we can just go mono removal maybe pick up a shock or scorching dragon fire or two maybe another wind scarred craig and get a solid amount of mana base with tap lands and then just be able to take any removal and just get some little incidental extra things here and there along the way. Well then, the next pick was Graphs of Phantasms. And I took a second and I sat back. I looked at my suite. Bastion's Lieutenant, Eliminate. Red, white tap land, and a Grasp of Darkness. And this, in all other formats, I would feel pretty good about. Two removal spells and a bomb card plus some fixing. And I sat back and I was like, this is not a good start. I have, arguably, some of the best pieces of removal in the set, plus a bomb rare. And I thought, this is gonna go absolutely sideways. And why is that? I looked at it and I'm like, so right now my cars are indicating me to go towards black-white, but I'm not black-white life gain. And I thought in order to go black-white life gain, I would need to draft so many cards to get into this deck's archetype and then maybe it starts to pay me off and i was like there's no way i'm gonna be able to find this especially when i sit back and reflect to get there i have to find like two or three uncommons plus a couple of the life gain draw card spells and then i still need to find things to put on the board no 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 we paused we thought we're gonna give up on these removal spells and we're gonna find a better route. And then I went into a green-white tokens type of deck. A plus one, plus one counters, getting some board state, going to town. And this deck, I feel, was significantly better than what I could have done if I stuck with my black removal spells. It just wasn't worth it to just take the best cards in the pack. I had to think about where I was going down the line and reflecting on it, even with this amazingly strong start, and then thinking about the route that I would have to take to make the black-white deck work, it's just not right. It's just, it's not good. Even with this crazy, strong, powerful, early interaction start with a bomb rare, it's just not good enough. So, all in all, in the end, if you're going into the black-white deck, you want to find the payoffs, the Griffinary, the Silver Smoke Ghoul, maybe the Indulging Patrician. And that's cute, that's good, but in order to make these things work, you have to stay on plan. And then I think to myself, if I'm staying on plan and I'm prioritizing these cards, then what else is going to go to the wayside? Is it going to be the removal package? Well, at that point, then you're really not looking good for this format. It is a revelation. That is, M21 really pays off when you're looking at what the strongest decks in the format are. 
starting to draft towards those decks and working your way backwards from that. And I hope that this little sequence can kind of help highlight where we should be going when we're going best of one on Magic Arena, finding decks that have good game plans and enacting them as soon as you possibly can. It's a lot to take in, and it was a big moment of revelation for me. Well, Borak, we have talked about three different colors and their individual color pairings and how we might approach them in this latest course. And that leaves us with two colors we have yet to focus on. And well, we just walked past a fire pit in this park. And so let's go ahead and talk about red. And consequentially, let's talk about white. I think the big story of this set is the strength of aggro and the strength particularly of the red and white colors. They do the best at curbing out. The presence of cards like Bastard's Acolyte has truly shaped the way in which we're looking at this format. And cards like Makeshift Battalion, the 3-2 three, for 3 that gets a counter when you attack with 3 or more creatures. Card's never been better than how it is right here and right now. You get one trigger off that, it's a 4-3, and if they don't answer it then and there, you get to swing next turn and it's a 5-4. I know it's two turns, but quite frankly, the removal in the set is not the greatest in the world. Yeah, you got Grasp, you got Eliminate, you've got Scorching Dragonfire, and you got Shock, but please believe you're not going to find most of those cards past picks one or two. And so, things like a Makeshift Battalion become very, very strong, and also, tricks. Cards like Titanic Growth, cards like Ranger's Guile, cards like Sure Strike become better because they are better ways of interacting than just finding the removal, which is going to be short anyway in this course environment. So we all know red-white, it's strong. If you've never had a chance to draft Alpine Houndmaster, please go and do it. Getting away with playing a two drop on turn two and then automatically Boros gets a two for one card advantage. And even if your opponents say Pestilence Haze, the minus two minus two spell, it's good, and it'll be effective against red-white, but if you're playing Alpine Houndmaster, all of a sudden, you've got those cards right back, and Igneous Cur, the 1-2 that pumps itself plus 2 plus 0 for every 1 red you pay into its activated ability, the card has surprised me a lot. It's been a great monosync, and it's good in the early since it gets on the board and can be part of a double block if you need to, or just as a threat of activation. It's... It's a better card than I could have put it on when I looked at the spoiler. So if you end up getting in a red-white deck, do it. But as we've said earlier, Core Set 2021 has been out for a while. The big news stories of the set being that this is a curve-centric format, an aggressively based format, a format that rewards you for having a low curve. I don't think you're gonna find that red-white deck as often as we did at the early parts of the format. So you have to be limble. Limble word? I don't know, Borak. When you're walking and talking, sometimes you get tired. Nimble. That's what I was thinking of. Yes, thank you. That is the word. You have to be nimble in your picks and you have to be flexible. So when I'm starting off a draft, if I'm seeing good red or white cards, I would still take them. However, I am going to be willing to do one of two things. Number one, leave those early picks to play what is being passed to me. Finding your open lane. 
I will go and take a white card, a white card, a white card, a white card. Be okay with taking nothing but white until I find a signal and pick eight or pick nine or seeing what table's around. That table slot, that pick nine in your draft is really key to see what cards got around to you. What are things that other people are not prioritizing because you're going to get paid off in packs two and packs three. And because of the strength of both the red and the white cards, I would highly recommend trying to stay on the monocolor train as long as you can for either of those color pairs. Additionally, I would say the same for black. If you are the only black drafter at the table, which I found myself in a position to be more than once, you can get paid off with late grasps. You can get paid off with the Crypt Lurker and Rise Again package and do the reanimation thing that we talked about in previous episodes. Finding the way to stay open, see what's being passed to you, and knowing how to navigate these different color pairs and utilizing what they want to do in respect to the speed of the format is going to get a lot more W's to your arena account. And in the last few days, I really felt taking these steps to improve my deck building and my deck drafting skills has turned a corner in my win-loss record in course at 2021 on Arena. I literally went back-to-back trophies on blue-red decks, and both decks wanted to do different things. Knowing how to navigate each of the different deck archetypes and different plays in your color combinations, just like we talked about before with green-red, it's going to make your drafts go a lot better. Well, there we go, my unlucky lounge rats. Your midway perspective and retrospective on the 10 color pairs in Corset 2021. Not all are built evenly. Not all are great to draft. But in the end, it's still a fun format. I know that aggro is not my forte. And if you're like me out there, you're total value fans and you would love to play your two for one spells and trick out your opponents. But this isn't the kind of format that does that. This is the kind of format that rewards solid play, not getting too cute, and playing strongly, playing tightly, knowing your sequencing, and knowing when sequencing needs to change. This is also a format that rewards strong, solid, fundamental drafting. Stay in a single color, wait for your second color signals. If you end up in a mono white or mono red deck, perfectly fine. But I don't want to start splashing around for three or four colors. The Shrine deck, I'm not even going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But even if, say, I have a solid white-green deck with a number of black-white game lands, and all of a sudden I get past an Indulging Patrician, even though playing this card basically takes no hit on my mana base, I'm still not going to play this high-power uncommon, because truthfully... This is an uncommon build around. It really only pays you off when you're gaining that three life. The same goes for the black red three three that sacrifices something during your attack step. The same goes for the enclave, the conclave mentor, the green white guy. You don't want to splash around and be cute with these cards. They just don't pay you off by making your mana base worse by playing tap lands that are going to slow down your tempo. Good fundamental drafting good sequencing will pay out dividends and cause positive ripples throughout the rest of the course of the game. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to take a second to check in with all my unlucky lounge rats out there. How are you doing? 
It's now been a few months since we uh, we went into isolation, since the term social distancing came into play. And I know that I haven't been out and I haven't seen a lot of my friends in a long, long time. And you know, I've been used to that over the years, having worked on cruise ships and been out for contracts at a time. But the lack of being close to some people is very difficult. And I hope that wherever you are out there, that I hope that whatever this content is that I'm creating for you, that it's helpful, that it's positive, that it brings some joy to you. This day is very special for me because I took a journey back to my original hometown. I'm now sitting in the trunk of my car, looking at the old site of the original local game store that I went to when I first learned about Magic the Gathering some 20, 18 years ago, something like that. Numbers are getting weird as we all grow older. And I sit here, the local game store that I once frequented has now become a local eatery, place where people gather and enjoy food. And right next to it is the empty lot of an old blockbuster video. I can still see the quick drop box at the front of the building. And I'm sitting here looking at this empty space that clearly hasn't been tended to for a long time. And the location of a place that I once adored. And I think, wow, the ripples that caused my life to deviate from the sports and the student council that I once was and is now taken to a different route that I've gained so many friends and learned so many life lessons from. And now I get to express my love for it on this podcast. It's stunning. Just sitting back and looking at the ripples that caused my life to change the way in which it is now, it's magical. And I guess this is, at the end of this podcast, to accomplish two things. Number one, all my friends out there, all the connections that I've made, know that wherever you are, whatever route you've taken, that I have a lot of love for you out there. And for those who are listening to this podcast and maybe have never met me, know that I've got a love for you too. Even though we're far away and may never meet, we're all connected by a single passion, a single love. And I hope that that love takes you to places that are inspiring and cause us to do greater good for the peoples of the world. The second reason I left this, let's call it epilogue on the episode, is a call to support your local game stores out there. The echoes of a place that used to be are haunting to me. And I hope that since there's so much content coming down the pipeline, Jumpstart, Double Masters, Zendikar Rising, that you take a second to support those local game stores, call them, order a box, get some pre-release kits, but support those local retailers that we all love so that we can continue to see this game grow and continue to be a positive space for us to make those connections with people that we have never had a chance to meet before and never would have that chance if it wasn't for these bastions of social gathering. Well, whew, big deep breath, y'all. Thanks for listening to my little epilogue there. 
I hope that maybe that little talk meant something to you just as much as it meant a lot to me. And this is where I'm going to send it out to all of you. I want to hear what you think. Did you maybe draft a deck in course at 2021 that you thought was going to be a real stinker because of the colors you ended up in? And it just turned out to be quite good. I think there's a little bit more yet to discover, especially now that the format is starting to self-correct. So find me on Instagram at Corey Demon Enriquez, or find me on Twitter and tell me about some of those decks. And if you find me on Twitter, you can see I'm starting to post more deck lists that I have put together from drafts on Arena. And I want to know what you think. When it comes down to those last 21st, 22nd, 23rd cards, those little final choices can add up to a lot in a deck's composition. So I'd love to know what you think about those last cards that we put into the 40. Whew, Borak. Looks like we made it back here to the Unlucky Lounge, and I don't know about you, but I could certainly use an untapped step. I knew you would too, my bear-tastic friend. Yeah, I, I don't like bear-tastic either. We're, we're not going to use that one again. In any case, no matter where you are, my lucky lounge rats, thanks for tuning in. My name is Corey, alongside Borok. Go out there, make some magical memories of your own. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.